Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. The Via Dolorosa, in the greater sense, it means the way of suffering. Via way, Dolorosa, suffering. So it means the, the way of suffering. And from Christ's triumphal entry, the week before he was put on the cross, the week of the cross, and several key events. Obviously, we're not looking at everything that happened, but four key events that led to the crucifixion, which leads, of course, three days later to the resurrection. And we looked last week at the triumphal entry. We'd say, wow, that was an exciting time. The only time Jesus accepted accolades and praise, but he was weeping. He was brokenhearted because he knew in a few days they would reject him and they would shout, crucify him, crucify him. So even that day, which is probably a highlight, was even a sad day, a day of suffering for Christ. Today we come to Gethsemane, as you probably have assumed by the scripture reading a few moments ago. So let's kind of orient our minds at least the geography of where Gethsemane is. Gethsemane is just east of old Jerusalem. Obviously, Jerusalem has grown like any other city over time, and it's much larger than it was in Jesus' day, obviously much larger than it was in David's day when David captured the city from the Jebusites, and hence the name. Gethsemane is east of old Jerusalem. If you have a map, you can see the Valley of Kidron, or the little Kidron brook that runs through it. East of the old city, east of the temple, on that east side of the city is the Kidron Valley. And then you go up the Mount of Olives, and Gethsemane is a part of the Mount of Olives. Gethsemane means oil press. You know, in the ancient world, they pressed, they grew olives, and olive trees lived to be very, very old. Matter of fact, some would say that some there today were trees that were alive when Jesus was there. So they can live well over a thousand years, maybe 2,000 years. And Gethsemane means oil press. At that time, it was a, a walled grove, an olive grove, a walled grove with a stone olive press in the center. They dumped olives in, of course, crushed them, drained the oil out then as well. And we know Jesus suffered mightily. Jesus suffers all this week, but he suffered greatly this night before the crucifixion. This is the night before the crucifixion. And this passage, I think, gives us some insight into the agony that Christ experienced. None of us should think that we're going to escape agony or suffering. Now, there's a world of difference between what Christ suffered. He suffered in our behalf. He suffered for our sin. And as Christians, or even as human beings, we suffer, but we're not suffering for our own sin. We're not paying off our sins or suffering because of something we've done in the past. That's a wrong view of the gospel. That's a wrong view of uh, redemption. But we will suffer. And Christians today should not expect to be exempt from suffering. Christians have suffered down through the millennia, down through the ages. And there, there are Christians that are suffering in Myanmar. We prayed for them. There are Christians that are suffering in Africa or in the Middle East, the 1040 window. Christians have suffered because of their faith down through the ages. And somehow we kind of think that we're exempt from it here in America. But I think we're coming to the realization that suffering is coming for Christians in America. Because we're living in a post 
post-Christian world, the post-modern world today. We're not exempt from that. First century Christians and martyrs down through the ages have suffered. While being a Christian has many wonderful temporal and eternal benefits, there are benefits in both. Matter of fact, if somebody sat down here with a briefcase full of $1,000 bills and said, here's a million dollars, less Hines, why don't you just go back to living your life the way you did before you came to Christ? I could use the money, and I hope I would invest it wisely, but it wouldn't be a temptation for me because the Christian life is so much better. This Christian life on earth now, not talking about eternity, but now is so much better than what I had before I came to Christ that really I could turn away from that. There are benefits for living the Christian life now in this temporal world, but the benefits in the eternal aspect are beyond our description. When we come here to this passage of Scripture, I kind of want to do a little bit different. I want to take a little bit more of a contemplative view of Gethsemane, not necessarily working through each verse and explaining what each verse means, but more of a, a thoughtful, contemplative view of Gethsemane, its place, and how it affected Christ. So first of all, in verse 32, the mystery of of Gethsemane. The mystery of Gethsemane, we'll talk about the place and then Jesus's prayer. So the place and then the prayer. There is a mystery about Gethsemane where our imagination literally fails us. Our minds stagger and our language, and especially if you're trying to talk about it, our language seems bankrupt in describing this particular event. Because there is a battle, there is a spiritual battle, a battle of the ages. You know, historians like to talk about epic battle. This is an epic battle, the battle of the ages, because Satan is marshalling his forces against Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And Jesus Christ knows what's coming. He's omniscient. He knows everything. And there is a battle taking place in the garden in prayer. I don't know if we think of prayer that way, but literally prayer is a battle that time. Maybe not always, but this was certainly a battle that was raging this night in the heart of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And by the way, we're told that Jesus often went to this place. This is not a one and done thing. This was not a, a fluke that Jesus wandered into Gethsemane at the Mount of Olives. Jesus often went to this place. And I don't know if you can read that without being challenged by that. Jesus had a pattern. He had spiritual disciplines. There was regularity in what he did. He often went to this place to pray. Is your Christian life so consistent Maybe I can use the word so structured, so disciplined, so consistent that those close to you know when and where they can find you in prayer or at worship. Do your neighbors look from the breakfast table out their front window and say, yeah, it's 9.15. So-and-so, our neighbors across the street are headed off to Sunday school. Just like clockwork. Jesus went to this place faithfully, regularly. Jesus was consistent. And Judas knew exactly where to find him. He knew he would be there. Judas knew where to find him. 
I put it here into my notes. There's some tremendous parallels or maybe contrast here. The first Adam, that's what we all know, Adam the first man. The first Adam was in a garden and he exerted his will to the ruination of the human race. He exerted his own will over God's will, and it was to the ruination of the human race. The last Adam, Jesus is called the last Adam several times in the Bible. The last Adam was in a garden as well, and he deserted his will, and it brought about the redemption of the human race. What a contrast. Second, in the Garden of Eden, the first Adam faced a tree, and he yielded to the will of Satan. In the Garden of Gethsemane, a different garden to several thousand years later, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the last Adam prayed. He didn't lust like the first Adam, our forefather. He prayed and he faced the tree of Calvary and he yielded to the will of God. What a difference obedience makes. One brought sin and ruination. One brought redemption and freedom. What a difference obedience makes in the life of Christ and, of course, in our life as well. The place called Gethsemane, the prayer that took place in Gethsemane. The Bible tells us here that Jesus began to pray. Prayed multiple times. Really, the indication is that he prayed through the night. And there were periods he'd go and wake up his disciples, or at least Peter, James, and John. But he was praying these stretches of time agonizing over what was coming, talking with his father. And Jesus had prayed with his disciples. They, they had heard him pray. He had taught them to pray, gave them the Lord's Prayer. He had prayed with his disciples in many different situations. But this prayer is different. This prayer is different. Jesus says in verse 34, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I think at least Jesus was afraid that his heart was breaking over what was coming and the sins of the world being thrust upon him, that he would die before he got to the cross. I'm so sorrowful. And you can die of a broken heart. We've all read stories of somebody that's been married for 50 or 60 years. Their spouse died, and they die of a broken heart within a week or two. You can die of a broken heart. I think Jesus was concerned that his physical body would not maybe make it. I'm sorrowful to the point of death. Jesus prostrates himself on the ground. By the way, there's many different ways that you can pray. You can pray in your seat. You can pray standing up. You can pray with your hands lifted. The Bible talks about that, lifting up holy hand. We can praise God and praise him and pray to him with our hands lifted up. We can kneel, obviously, showing submission and bowing before him. Jesus prostrates himself. We see that in the Bible. In other words, he's flat prone on, on his stomach. He's prone. An ultimate uh, picture of, of submission to the Father. Jesus prostrates himself on the ground in agony and in tears. He's weeping. And he was not so much fearful of death. I think all of us have a measure of fear of death. It's just inherent. It's hardwired into our DNA. Nobody really wants to die physically. There's a pain aspect, but there's a certain uncertainty. Jesus wasn't so much fearful of death, but I think he shuddered. I think he was breaking down and trembling 
as he contemplated being forsaken by his father because that was going to take place the next day. Here he had an eternal communion with his father. The Trinity had unbroken, unrivaled, and there's no really way to describe it. He had communed with the Father from eternity past, and even while he was incarnate as the Son of God in his flesh, he had constant communion with the Father, but that was going to be broken. That was going to be cut off, and I think he shuddered at that. He had never experienced it, couldn't imagine it, even in the mind of God, probably the aspect of being if we can put it in human terms, lonely. The loneliness of having communed with someone for eons and time immortal and then being cut off from that, that's loneliness. Probably every adult in the room has experienced loneliness. I know I have. I'm sure you have. There are people here today that have experienced deep loneliness. Maybe the blunt reality of a spouse who dies someone that you've lived with for decades, and now they're gone. The house is empty. Their chair is absent. The, the place at the table is, is, they are no more. The blunt reality of death for others, maybe it's the raw emotions of divorce that that individual left surprisingly, leaving you alone the raw emotion of a divorce and the loneliness that just speaks to your soul. Maybe it's the idea of some people here have been abandoned and they realize I'm unloved, I'm unwanted, I've been abandoned. There's a deep loneliness, but even though we've experienced loneliness, we've never experienced the kind of loneliness that the triune God had at this moment because they'd experienced all of eternity together. None of us want to go through unbearable times, and especially alone. At least we can say we have a friend or a spouse or a parent or someone that we can turn to for comfort. But all of Jesus' human friends had forsaken him in the hours to come. They all fled and ran away, and he realized very soon that even his heavenly father would turn away. The mystery of Gethsemane. Second, the agony of Gethsemane. I thought about that as reading through verses 33 through 36. There's a, a physical aspect, and there's a spiritual aspect. The physical aspect Jesus says in verse 36, as he prays, he says, Abba, the most intimate term describing the father is like daddy, we would say, as a little child would say to their father, Abba, father, all things are possible for you. In the mind of God, anything is possible. God can take impossible situations and fix them. And I don't know the road that Jesus' mind is going down, but no doubt in his humanness, and he was 100% human, in his humanness, he's thinking, God, if there is another way out, if there's another way to accomplish salvation without me being separated from you, could it be done? Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. He's asking, if you will take this cup from me, but nevertheless, and that's a term of surrender, 
but God, this is what I would prefer, but nonetheless, nevertheless, I submit to you. My submission is clearly known to you. Nevertheless, not my will, not what I will, but your will, what you will. So you notice he says this cup in verse 36 here. And remember, Jesus asked his disciples earlier, they were talking about the kingdom and who's great and what they're going to be doing. And he says, are you able to drink this cup with me? And what did they say? Oh, yeah. They answer nonchalantly, flippantly. We would probably say foolishly, and that probably doesn't even capture it all. They say, oh, yeah, we can drink the cup. That, and Jesus is talking about dying on the cross. And they say, oh, yeah, we can drink the cup that you drink of. No, they couldn't. They were talking out of their head. They didn't understand all that was coming. They answered foolishly, oh, yes. In the Bible, when it talks about draining the cup or drinking the cup, that term and the term baptism are used metaphorically to describe. It's a way of saying, identify completely with you. When it says in the Bible that the Jews were baptized with Moses in the wilderness. In other words, they were identifying completely with Moses. He was their leader. He was following them. They would follow him. They completely identified and depended upon Moses. When it says the children of Israel were baptized, it wasn't talking about water baptism, obviously. Many times the Bible talks about drinking the cup. And, and that is the idea of draining the dregs and, and, and experiencing it completely. Draining it to the bottom where the, where the sediment was settled. And Jesus is talking about, if you take this cup away from me, I would appreciate it. I would love that. But if not, and Jesus, I think, knew there was no other way. Jesus knew this was the plan of God that was born in eternity past. Human beings, we recoil at the idea of pain and, and suffering. And fortunately, we live in a day with modern medicine. And we heal better when we're not in pain. We have all kinds of medications that relieve people of chronic pain, whether it be back pain or arthritic pain or whatever it might be. We live in a, a wonderful day because people live their lives sometimes with, with chronic, debilitating pain. And I'm not saying that people don't do that today. But we have modern medicine, pharmaceuticals. We have surgeries that relieve people of terrible pain that they would have to live in in ancient times from broken bones and broken bodies. So uh, we're spared much physical pain, even in death. And I think there's a tipping point there that we sometimes go too far over. I think in times past, they knew they were dying and they had clarity about dying. And so they often used that time to talk to their family. And the words of a dying man weigh heavily on others. And they would often... Uh, talk about the things that are important and, and things that maybe they should have said earlier in life. They give directions for the future. But now sometimes we go into hospice care and, and, and there's so much drugs in the body to alleviate the pain. Yes, but they're in a fog. And some things that need to be said are never said. And maybe things that need to be made right are never made right. 
So there's a balance there to it. But we live in a, in a day where we don't have the same kind of physical pain. We live in a wonderful day. Jesus knew there was going to be pain. Jesus knew there was going to be physical pain. He knew he was going to experience much physical pain. He would come to the place where he would sweat great drops of blood. There was a, a breakdown in his bodily system, and that's not unique to Christ. That's happened before when there is such stress upon the body that the capillaries break down and we sweat out through our sweat gland blood. So he knew there was going to be the physical pain, sweating of blood, the crown of thorns, those long thorns that would be pressed into his, past his hairline and past his dermis and into his skull, into his very skull. He knew that was coming. And the 40 lashes would be shredding the skin and the tendons and the flesh and the muscles and sometimes exposing the very bones in a person's body when they receive 40 lashes. He knew that was coming, the great loss of blood. He knew he would slip into extremis. He knew he would be nailed to a cross and his feet and his hands would receive those wooden spikes that were strong enough to hold his body weight on the cross for all those hours. He knew all of that was coming, being omniscient, being God. He knew exactly how it would feel. He knew exactly how it would be received in his body. But I don't think Jesus was afraid to die. He knew God gives dying grace and God still gives dying grace. But just knowing what was coming was going to make it harder for Jesus. Knowing exactly what was going to happen made it harder for Jesus. So there was the physical aspect, there was the spiritual aspect as well. The Bible says Jesus loved his disciples and he's loved his disciples to the end. He deeply cared for these men that had been following him for the three, three and a half years that he had been teaching and ministering in Israel. He loved these men and I'm sure in his own mind he didn't feel that they were ready to go it on their own to lead the church in his absence and his departure. Now he would be separated from them, but much more than that. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, but God made Christ who knew no sin to become sin for us. Christ knew that the sins of the world, you think of the worst sins that you've committed, and I'm speaking primarily to Christians here today, but you think of the sins of your past. Sometimes I don't like to think about the sin that I've committed in my past. But you think about the sins of your past. Or you think about the worst sinners that have ever lived. And here is a perfectly holy, just God. And how he must have shuddered at the reprehensible thought of taking all the world's vile, repulsive, wicked sins upon him. It's hard for us to, to put that in our thinking. I mean, you take a person that's lived in a very good life, uh, grew up in a wholesome Christian home, never experienced really the world and all the, the filth of the world. And if they were dumped into it, they're exposed to it. Or the world captures them and they're raped or molested. Or they're thrown in the army and they experience all the things that take place there, the words and the language and the killing and all of that. 
and they've grown up in a very wholesome, godly environment. It's very hard for them to adjust to that, to respond to that. But you take God, who's never sinned and never ever experienced anything that's even tainted our lives, and now he's going to have the sins of the world all dumped upon him, upon his own soul. The burden, the shuddering, reprehensible. It's amazing Jesus wasn't vomiting in the garden as he contemplates that. That his stomach isn't retching at the very thought of all the sins of mankind that we could never describe are being laid upon him. To us, in our world, let's just face it, sin is popular. Sin is cool. Sin is hip. You know, artists sing and rap about sin and they sell millions of records cds podcasts actors and actresses portray sin and they're lauded and paid millions of dollars for portraying sin in videos athletes or business tycoons brag about their sin And they're somewhat in awe because of the sins that they can brag about. In our world, sin is popular, it's hip, it's cool. And even Christians don't see sin the way God sees it. We have to admit, we don't see our sin the way God sees it. Sometimes it bothers us, certainly it convicts us, we confess it, but we don't see sin the way God sees it. It deceives the naive. Sin ruins lives. It damns souls. And if we would see sin as God does, we would hate it the way he does. But we don't. We keep running back to it. But I think the better we understand what sin did to Christ, the better we see the picture of what happens this night and the next day as Jesus is on the cross, the better we understand what sin did to Christ, the more desirous we will be to flee from it like we had winged feet. But I'm afraid we don't see sin. It's certainly the way Jesus saw it. Reprehensible. Egregious. Ugly, filthy, vile, reprehensible. So there were the spiritual aspects. Third, the victory of Gethsemane, verses 37 through 42. Not rereading the verses. As I said, we're taking a little bit more of a thoughtful, contemplative view of this passage. You are familiar with it. Through Gethsemane, we learn the secret to victory in the Christian life. Number one, we see Jesus forsaking his will. He had a human will. Jesus wasn't schizophrenic, you know, human will, divine will, etc. You know, human body, divine glory, etc. He wasn't schizophrenic. There was an aspect that his body and his flesh and his human desire, and he forsook his human will not my will but thine be done. You know, the essence of sin, if you boil it down, if you break it down and condense what sin is, if you distill what sin is, sin 
is the assertion of our will over God's will. That's what sin is. Sin is the assertion of my will over God's revealed divine will. That's what sin is. Now, there's many aspects of how that plays out, but at its very distillation, at its very seed, at its very essence, sin is my will over God's revealed will. Satan was thrown out of heaven. He says, I will ascend to the mount. I will be like the most holy. He says, I will, I will. And he was cast out of heaven. That is the essence of sin. I will. Peter denied the Lord because he didn't understand the deceitfulness of his own heart and the corruption of his own will. When we say in Adam's fall, it corrupted us completely, it's true. In theology, we talk about the corruption. The fall affected our mind, our will, and even our emotions. It affects how we think. It affects our desires. It affects our emotions. The fall affected us completely. We still have the Imago Dei, the image of God. You've heard me illustrate it this way. It's like taking a coin and putting it on an anvil and then taking a ball-peen hammer and hammering that quarter or that penny until it's flattened out. You can maybe still see the head and which side is tailed. You can't make out the words in God we trust or anything like that. And that's what happened in the fall. The Imago Dei, the image of God that was clearly seen in Adam and Eve before the fall has now been hammered. It's been corrupted. It's been just hammered away so you can barely recognize the Imago Dei because of the fall. Our mind, will, and emotions have been corrupted, and we desire our own will instead of God's will. And we have to train ourselves in godliness, the Bible says. The gospel not only saves us, Peter tells us it trains us, it educates us, it saves us, and it sanctifies us to do God's will. And we have to train ourselves to do not our will, but God's will. Peter didn't understand the deceitfulness of his own heart and the depravity of his own will. He said, others may deny you in this passage. Others may deny you, but I never will. Huh. Within hours, he denies him. Within hours, Jesus surrendered to the Father's will. And if there is a secret, I hate to use that word, but if there is a secret to living for God, it is constantly surrendering to God's will because we constantly get out of the will of God because of our sin and because of our own will. And we have to get back on the track. We have to realign our thinking, our living, our speech with the word of God. We have to get back into the will of God. Getting saved doesn't make us a great Christian. It is constant surrender and, and absorbing and steeping in the word of God that can make us a good Christian. And it's constantly coming back to the Lord and say, I've stepped outside of your will. I've stepped outside of what the word of God teaches. And so I surrender myself to you. It is not a matter of, okay, I'm saved. I've got the Holy Spirit. I'm going to go live my life. No, it is a moment by moment decision that I'm surrendering to the will of God. 
It's a moment-by-moment experience. That's the thrill of the Christian life, is a constant surrender to the will of God. When we come to the point that we're willing to deny our will, submit our will, die to our own will, maybe we could say, when we come to that point, we are on the pathway to victory. But not before. Do you pray what Jesus taught us and his disciples to pray? Not my will, but thine be done. Father, not my will, but thine. Do you pray that prayer? That should be one of those repetitious prayers. George Truett, the great preacher in Texas, said this, To know the will of God is the greatest knowledge. To do the will of God is the greatest achievement. How true. To know the will of God. How are we going to know the will of God? Except the Spirit reveals it to us in his word. You've heard me say many times, success, not having the biggest house on the block, driving the nicest car, walked by a Lamborghini in our neighborhood yesterday. Matter of fact, I walked right up to it. I said, man, I don't recognize that car. That's a Lamborghini. Had it written right on the back. I don't know what a Lamborghini costs, but it costs more than my Ford. I know that. Okay? Success in life is not the biggest house on the block or the Lamborghini or the bank account or being married to a trophy wife or a trophy husband or any of those things or having the accolades of the world. Success is finding, following, and fulfilling the will of God. That's success. That's success. So I agree with Truett. To know the will of God is the greatest knowledge. To do the will of God is the greatest achievement. And that's different for all of us to some degree. The will of God in my life is different probably than in yours or the person sitting at the end of the aisle. Forsaking our will. We're talking about the victory of Gethsemane. Jesus forsook his will. We forsake our will. Second, embracing God's will. When Jesus prayed, not mine, but thine. What a good prayer. Not mine, but thine. He was acknowledging that the Father had a plan for his life that was drawn out in eternity past. The Father had a plan for his earthly life, and he wanted that plan fulfilled to the letter. Jesus wanted that plan fulfilled to the letter. And God has a plan for your life. God has a purpose for your life. You say, well, I missed God's will for my life. I wasn't saved then. I wasn't in the will of God. Or I was saved and, and man, I sinned and I made some bad decisions and I got way outside the will of God. You can be in God's will today. It isn't like you've messed up for life. That isn't our kind of God. God can put you in the will of God, wherever you are now. Yes, there may be some consequences and things might not be of the original plan, but you can be in the will of God today. Not my will, but thine. Jesus prays. He has a will for the Son. He has a will for all of us. A plan, a purpose for your life. And the absolute best decision you could ever make is, Lord, I take my hands off. <laughs> take my hands off the steering wheel. I take my hands off the reins. I back away from what my plan for my life is, and I submit to you, not my will, but thine. That would be the best decision you could ever make. 
me tell you, I've made that decision. The best decision I ever made was to get saved and to surrender to the Lord. And by the way, I've had to do that many, many times. It's not one and done. We have to keep coming back to that and say, Lord, I know what I want and I know where my inclinations are and I know what my desires are. But Lord, not my will, but thine. That's submission. Immediately we hear the clanking of swords and we see the shimmering of torches as the soldiers arrive. And Jesus says to his disciples who's been slumbering, in Jesus' greatest hour of need of company and companionship, he says to them, arise, let us be going. Why does he say that? Because he surrendered to the will of God. Was Jesus going to flee and run off? No. Everything in his body, every cell in his body, every muscle in his body said, run. Or call down the angels of heaven, wipe them out. Jesus doesn't run. He doesn't call down judgment upon the soldiers. No, the cross was ahead, and that was what was best for all of mankind. That was the will of God, and the will of God is always the best. Choosing the will of God is always the best. Let's pray. Father, we want your will to be done in our life. Sometimes we discover it and we run away from it. Sometimes we discover it and we dismiss it. We put it off. But Lord, may every heart, every mind, every will here today say, Lord, not my will, but thine. I want your will for the rest of my life. I know it's in my best interest. I know it's in the best interest of everyone around me. May that be our prayer, a prayer similar to yours. We know what great, wonderful results of Jesus submitting to the will of the Father brought. And we're not the means of salvation. We're not redeemers. But at the same time, submitting to your will will have the best outcome for the most number of people. And so we submit to it. Use our short life, our feeble talents and abilities as we surrender them to you. Lord, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you as Savior, they haven't been, what we sang in that song, born again. If they've never been born again, may they give me the opportunity to show them from the Word of God how they can be saved and born again. I pray in Jesus' name.